everyone. Welcome to Antibodies. This is our 19th episode in the Immunology 101 series, a segment where we teach immunology. Joining me today are my two co-hosts, Dr. Ash Gardner and Dr. Koshika Yadava. How are you both doing today? I'm doing great. It's it's very uh, cool to be called doctor. I very recently defended, so that's still a new a new uh, phrase to me, Dr. Gardner. I know, right? Same for me. <laughs> Feels very good. <laughs> Unfortunately for me, it's been too long, so it doesn't have the same en- <laughs> the enthusiastic ring. It doesn't last anymore. like forever because that's how I feel it's going to to yeah. feel right now. <laughs> yep. So I thought of something funny this week. What is it? <laughs> what is it? What did the memory T cell say to E. coli? What? What? I will always remember you. No, that is... <laughs> That's exactly what a memory T cell would say. I've heard memory T cells have a very hard time maintaining relationships. Well, yeah? Yeah, okay. because they keep bringing up things from their past. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, That's and I think this is a Yeah, this is a good segue into our episode today where we'll talk about the memory T cells. Could we quickly review our discussion from the last episode? Yeah, sure. In the last episode, we talked about how activated T cells differentiate into memory and effector T cells. The effector T cells are one of the foot soldiers of the immune system. We also talked about how helper T cells are more diverse than cytotoxic T cells. This is because helper T cells come in a lot of flavors. This helper T cell flavor, or fate as some would call it, is dependent on the third signal of the T cell activation process, that is, the polarizing cytokines that they are going to receive. Depending on these polarizing cytokines, the T helper cell can become either T helper 1, T helper 2, T helper 9, T helper 17, T helper follicular cells, or the gazillion other types that we will not mention today. Each of these T helper subtype is characterized by three parameters. First, the polarizing cytokine that acts on the T cell in order to make it that particular fate. Then, second, the expression of master transcription regulator or a master gene, or that we call it, that will promote the specific T helper phenotype and all the genetic changes associated with it. And then the third point would be the secretion of effector cytokines that are somewhat unique to this helper subtype. So we spent a lot of time in the last episode talking about these different flavors of the T helper cells, specifically focusing on the effector T cells. And so I think the next obvious uh, change in topic is to talk about the memory T cells. What are they doing? What is their role in the response? Right. What happens after the infection clears? What happens to these T cells, all these effectors, memories, all of that? So I looked into this. (laughs) And after (laughs) the T helper cells perform their effector functions, most of these effector cells will die by the programmed cell death apoptosis. What's left, however, that forms the part of the body's immunological memory, uh, the memory T cells. Memory T cells, they don't directly attack pathogens. That's the job of the fully differentiated effector cells. 
But the memory T-cells, they wait around and they're on the lookout for the reappearance of their cognate antigen. Memory T-cells have a much longer lifespan than naive or effector cells. Different types of memory T-cells are found in the lymph nodes and other secondary lymphoid organs within the peripheral tissues, and also circulating between the tissues. So whenever a pathogen comes around a second time or a third time or a fourth time, the memory T-cell is there to quickly and robustly respond. So what is making these memory T-cells so efficient? So they have a lower threshold for activation than naive T-cells do, and they're really sensitive to activation signals. In addition, their expression of co-stimulatory receptors and adhesion molecules allow for more interactions with antigen-presenting cells. So there's more opportunity for activation. It is likely that the epigenetic profile of the memory cell also contributes to the rapid response in that they're, they're poised to express the response genes quickly following activation. Once the memory T cell receives these signals, it can asymmetrically divide, giving rise to another memory T cell as well as an effector cell. Both of these are going to be specific to the antigen that the memory T cell was. Oh, hold on right there. Why does that sound like this memory T cell is a stem cell? Well, because it's kind of acting like one to an extent. This is how memory T cells maintain their numbers and live a long life while acting as a source for new effector T cells whenever the body is reinfected, much like a stem cell does when it's differentiating as well. We'll talk more about this property later in our discussion because not all memory T cells do this to the same degree. Okay, then. Memory cells, they confirm long-term immunity uh, that can last decade, like, or even for a lifetime in some cases. Uh, and there are, of course, the reasons why vaccines work. Um, let's talk about how they look different from naive or effector cells. If I, let's say, if I was to look at these two cells under using a flow cytometer, let's say, how can I distinguish between these two? Yeah, I think that's a really good point and of like particular interest to immunologists. So far, we heard about how they're different functionally. So Ashley told us that compared to primary effector T-cells, memory T-cells live longer and respond faster and more potently. And compared to naive T-cells, well, they have a lower activation threshold. But as you said, when we're talking about how they look differently, it's what's on the surface that helps us distinguish them. So distinguish a memory T-cell from a naive or an effector T-cell. So unfortunately, it's time again to draw from our CD collection of surface markers. Oh, oh but... no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but let's keep it simple. Let's, let's look at the top five. So the first two markers, they fall into the category of homing markers. So these are CCR7 and CD62L. Now, both of these are required to home to secondary lymphoid organs like the lymph nodes. Wait, I'm going to stop you right there and ask, what is homing? Yeah, I think that's a good point. We should clarify that because homing can mean different things in different biological contexts. But let's talk specifically about what homing means in immunology. It is a process by which lymphocytes move to or traffic into specific microenvironments or tissues which control their differentiation and survival. So this is like secondary lymphoid organs, for instance. Or they can also home into other sites where they need to reside long-term or they need to be there at a given time. So tissues, so peripheral tissues, for instance. 
Now, this movement or migration requires cells to express proteins that help in sticking to surfaces or to change the cell shape in a way that it starts bulging in and out, such that the net result is a movement in a specific direction. So CCR7 and CD62L are two such proteins or homing markers that help T cells to migrate into secondary lymphoid organs, but they do so in different ways. So lymphocytes, they enter lymph nodes from the blood through structures called high endothelial venules. And to do so, they need to like attach to these HEVs or high endothelial venules. Now this requires interaction between CD62L, which is expressed on the T cells, to other set of proteins called peripheral node addressins, which are expressed on the HEVs. Now once the lymphocyte attaches CCR7, a chemokine receptor which is expressed on T cells, steps in, and then it can interact with secreted proteins called chemokines CCL19 and CCL21 that then attract the cells into these secondary lymphoid organs. So this interaction between CCR7 and CCL19 and 21 activates the T cells, and subsequently the T cells stop, and then they go into the T cell zones in the secondary lymphoid organs. Okay, 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 okay. That makes sense. Thank you. Now tell me, can we use these homing markers to distinguish between the T-cell subsets? Yeah, yeah, what use would they be if we couldn't, right? <laughs> so we know that naive T-cells need to re recirculate to lymph nodes, since that's where they're going to receive the activation signals. So obviously the naive T-cells express both of these homing markers, CCR7 and CD62L. Now, primary affected T cells need to go into tissues and not so much into lymph nodes, so they don't express these markers. Now, when it comes to memory T cells, it's a bit more complicated. So, of course. the reason for that is, <laughs> of course, it has to be complicated. The reason for that is that within memory T cells, there are functional subsets with their own pattern of recirculation through secondary lymphoid organs or to tissues. And depending on those patterns, they either express CCR7 and CD62L or not. I will talk a little bit more about these subsets shortly. But let's talk about another marker, which is a surface protein called CD69. Now, this is a C-type lectin, which helps to retain cells within tissues for long term. So only the memory T cells that reside within tissues express it, and naive and primary affected T cells do not. Now, the fourth marker is CD44. Now, this is an interesting one. CD44 mediates cell interaction with the extracellular matrix components, such as hyaluronin, and it is upregulated on all T cells which are antigen experienced. That means they've seen an antigen. So any T cell that has seen an antigen before will express CD44. So based on what I just said, which cells do you think would express CD44 or not? I'm thinking that primary effector T cells and memory T cells have both seen their cognate antigens. So they would express CD44, but naive cells, they haven't seen an antigen, so they should not express CD44. And at the same time, when we were talking about CD69, any, I'm guessing any T cell, definitely any T cell that has not seen an antigen would not be trying to reside in a tissue. So if we would not expect CD69 to be expressed by an, a non 
antigen experience T cell either, right? Yeah, you're absolutely right, both about CD44 and CD69. CD69 is even used as an activation marker for T cells. And CD44, as you said, is primarily expressed by affected T cells and memory T cells and not by naive T cells. And finally, let's talk about the isoforms of CD45, which are differentially expressed by naive primary affected T cells and memory T cells. Now, CD45 is a transmembrane protein tyrosine phosphatase, and it has different isoforms. And the different isoforms of CD45 have different length extracellular domains. The shorter the length of the extracellular domain expressed, the better is the T cell activation. So we know that memory T cells have a lower threshold of activation, so it's not surprising that they express the CD45 RO isoform, which is the shortest isoform, whereas naive and affected T cells express the CD45 RA isoform. So you say that the shorter length of CD45 RO compared to CD45 RA allows it to activate T cells? Exactly. The shorter chain makes it easier for CD45 to interact with the T-cell activation complexes and activate them better. Yeah, it is also important to note that CD45 has a ton of isoforms, and they also differ between humans and mice. So be careful out there. It can be confusing because a lot of times studies would be talking about mice isoforms while they they're parallel counterpart in the humans may or may not exist or may not maybe named something else this the yeah. whole world of immunology gets even scarier when you start reading about this these gazillion uh, cd45 isoforms and the differences between the species yeah truer words have never been said <laughs> according to my research <laughs> can someone review the names of all of these five markers before we move on yeah i could do that So we've got CCR7 and CD62L as homing markers, homing specifically to the secondary lymphoid organs, CD69 as a tissue retention marker, CD44 as a marker for antigen experience cells, and lastly, CD45 isoforms, which in the context of T-cells can distinguish memory T-cells from naive and affected T-cells. Perfect. Thank you so much for reviewing that, Koshika. So let's get back to memory T cells. You mentioned that there are also distinct subcategories within the memory T cell compartment. What are these and do they help us to understand memory T cell function? Let me take over from this point. And I'm really glad you asked that, Ash. (laughs) The subcategories within the memory T cell compartment are not just sign of our subcategorizing fetish as immunologists, which... To be honest, it is a part of it, but not the whole part of it. <laughs> they're, they're actually helpful in understanding the origin and function of memory T cells. Dare I say, it's not overly complicated. Oh, that's a change. Do go on. Sure. Originally, memory T cell subsets were defined as either central memory or effector memory T cells. Both of these subsets recirculate in the body, but home to different tissues and have different effector functions. The central memory T cells are found in circulation and also in secondary lymphoid organs. So they do express CD62L and CCR7, uh, both of these being the lymph node homing markers as we have discussed before. 
when they re-encounter antigen in the lymph node, they proliferate substantially and then sub subsequently differentiate into a variety of effector T-cell subtypes. We have this new type of memory T-cell called the effector memory T-cells uh, that on the other hand go straight to the source or rather the tissues which are the site of infection. And on encountering antigens, they rapidly deploy their effector cell functions, that is producing cytokines or killing the target cells. We now know that there are even more memory subsets. One of these is the resident memory T cells. These cells arise within the peripheral tissues at the time of the primary immune response, and they stay within these tissues long term, even after the antigen is cleared. They just sit within tissues where they will self-renew, and they will never leave. And they express CD69, which helps them, of course, in retaining within these tissues. As you can expect, they are the first responders upon reinfection, and they are potent chemokine producers. So they also facilitate a rapid influx of additional T-cells from the periphery. Finally, we have stem memory T-cells. They are quite rare, about 2-3% of all circulating T-cells, and in some way, they bridge the gap between the naive and the memory T-cells. Like naive T-cells, uh, they are minimally differentiated, and they're found mostly in the lymph nodes, but like memory T-cells, they do require survival signals, and some of these survival signals are interleukin-7 or interleukin-15. And also, like memory T-cells, they respond stronger, faster, and they're better upon uh, they're better at re re recognizing the antigens so i'm going to quickly talk uh, mention those four subtypes again we have the uh, central central memory t cell the effector memory t cell the resident memory t cell and the stem memory t cell so when you talk about the stem memory t cell subsets which you say are less differentiated and have the term stem cell in their name. I'm sniffing an origin or precursor role. Do stem cell memory T cells give rise to other memory T cell subsets? Well, your nose certainly sniffed that well, because yes, that is right. Stem cell memory T cells self-renew, and they could provide a long-lasting source of memory T cells. One of the models for memory T cell subset development does postulate a kind of linear pathway. That is, during a primary response, you have activated T-cells that progressively differentiate into stem cell memory T-cells, then they will eventually differentiate into central memory T-cells, then they will encounter an antigen again and proliferate and become effector memory T-cells, and those effector memory T-cells will give rise to effector T-cells that we discussed in the last episode. As you move down this path from the stem cell memory T-cell to the effector memory T-cell, these cells lose their stemless or stem-like property. They also lose their self-renewal and the memory potential, and they become more and more differentiated. How the resident memory T-cells fit into this model is still unclear, though we think they also likely arise from the stem memory T-cell. Okay, so perfect. Let me go through this one more time just so I'm clear. The naive T-cell sees its cognate antigen becomes activated. As the infection is cleared, 
uh, these T cells, this T cell can become a stem memory T cell, then a central memory T cell, then into an effector memory T cell, and then finally into an effector T cell. Yes, you got that right. Cool. Okay, so that's interesting. But what does a T cell need to become a memory T cell? I can answer that question. There's still a lot we don't know, so I can only kind of answer the question. <laughs> and there's a lot of interest in understanding the factors that commit a T cell to become a memory T cell. One can only imagine when these mysteries are revealed that we could achieve so much in terms of vaccines and immunotherapy. Signals such as the strength and the duration of antigen stimulation Specific cytokines, such as interleukin-7 and interleukin-15, as well as the Wnt signaling pathway, these are all important for the generation of T stem cell memory cells. Other memory subsets have other different requirements. For instance, effector memory T cells need IL-2, interleukin-2. Most immunologists would agree that the better and stronger that the primary response is, the better the resulting memory pool will be. So you mentioned that memory T cells respond faster and more robustly than primary affected T cells. But qualitatively, is that response identical? We don't have a definitive answer to whether the primary effector response is identical to the response from memory T cells. It is probably advantageous for the memory response on one hand to act similarly to the primary response, but also on the other hand to be ready to adapt and respond to the environmental cues. So we have been using memory T cells as an umbrella term for both CD8 and CD4 T cells. Can someone tell me if there are any differences between CD4 and CD8 memory T cells? Oh, you bet there is. Of course. <laughs> there are more CD8 memory T cells overall, and they have a longer lifespan compared to the CD4 memory T cells. Uh, there are also differences in where they home within the tissues. Uh, for example, memory CD8 T cells, they tend to sit around the epidermis at barrier tissues, and CD4 T cells are within the deeper layers of the tissue. But similarly to a primary response, CD4 T-cell help is necessary for memory CD8 T-cell development as well. Yep, you heard that right. Even memory CD8 T-cells need help from CD4s. Hmm, I'm hung up. As an aging person, I'm hung up on the longevity of these memory T-cells. They're so long-lived. So on behalf of anyone looking for the elixir of eternal life, what can we learn from the longevity of memory T-cells? How do they live you so long, even after the antigen has been cleared? You know, unfortunately, we don't have those answers yet either. But what we do know is unlikely to help you kickstart a longevity startup. Hmm. <laughs> it's fine, Koshika. Things will come, come around sometime. I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> We're just all here to, you know, find a cure to aging. Yeah. <laughs> the persistence of memory T-cells is through a process called homeostatic proliferation. And so this means that even after the antigen has been cleared, the infection is gone, the memory T cells can self-renew and divide occasionally. For this, they need the cytokines that we've been talking about, interleukin-7, interleukin-15. 
Now, there are differences in the requirements of CD4 and CD8 memory T cells here as well. Uh, for instance, IL-15, interleukin-15, is more important for the survival and division of CD8 memory T cells. And CD4 memory T cells, they require both IL-7 and IL-15. It's very complicated. If, if we look at these cells metabolically, though, there are some other interesting observations. So memory T cells, they're more off, they more often use the oxidative phosphorylation pathway. Effector cells, on the other hand, they utilize glycolysis metabolically to a greater extent. The use of glycolysis over oxidative phosphorylation is often a characteristic of shorter-lived cells. But as I said before, I wouldn't start up a, a longevity startup based on this info. Yeah, as a, a sidestep, if anyone's, anyone is interested in learning about how the immune system assists in making us live longer, apart from the usual ways we think of, you know, by not letting us die <laughs> early on, <laughs> we discussed an amazing paper on the topic of immunosenescence last year in the Bodyso 22 titled your immune cells determine how fast you age. Definitely check that out. Yeah, I I do got to check that out because even though I just said we don't have a whole lot of answers, I would love to get closer to learning how we age more slowly. Yep, it's, it's a very nice discussion. So uh, that's a lot of information on memory T cells that we all just went over. Uh, could someone summarize what we have just talked about? I will do that. So, after the gazillion things that we learned about today, let me summarize in a few bullet points. What we have learned is that we, when we first encounter a pathogen or an antigen, that is during the primary immune response, a part of the T cells differentiate into memory T cells, which are long-lived. It is these memory T cells that underpin our capacity to respond stronger, faster, better, when we re-encounter the pathogen or the antigen, that would be in the form of a secondary response. We learned how memory T cells differ from naive and effector T cells, not only in their function, but also in how they look. And with that, I mean their surface mark markers, which in a way also serve a purpose, right? They're not just there for immunologists to distinguish between them. <laughs> they sure are helpful, yeah. though. Then even within memory T cells, there are many flavors that uh, starting from central memory T cells, effector memory T cells, resident tissue uh, memory T cells, and stem memory T cells. These uh, different memory T cells subsets differ in their location, the way they circulate or not, and how they function. Also, they have very different degrees of stem cell-like properties. We've also touched upon all the remaining questions regarding T-cell memory, which are bound to keep immunologists scratching their heads for the next several years, if not decades. Thank you so much. I will remember this forever. <laughs> like that E. coli? <laughs> <laughs> like that E. coli. Oh, wait, no, the E. coli did not remember. It was the memory E. cell. It was a T. Well, memory yeah, T. But, cell. <laughs> yeah, I'll remember the this information like the memory T. cell remembers E. coli. Exactly. This, I think this is a good point to wrap up our discussion about memory T-cells today. Thanks, Koshika and Ash, for this wonderful discussion. For our audience, if you're interested to know more about our science communication endeavors, please check out antibodies.org. 
You can find out our blogs and podcasts there. If you have any questions or suggestions, you can email us at antibodies1 at gmail.com. With that, I'm your host. Now I can say Dr. Jatin Sharma <laughs> signing <laughs> off until we meet again. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.